All right, here's how we're going to begin. <clears throat> Shocker, the way we always begin with our kids. Kids, can I have your attention? I'm going to tell you what the scripture is going to be about, what we're going to read about in the Bible, and then what the sermon is going to be about, okay? Let me start off with this. Who knows what book of the Bible we're in? Job. We're in Job, <clears throat> and we're at the very end of Job. We're finishing Job today. Here's how it ends. Like this. I heard this from a pastor who heard this from a pastor, but this is a true story, okay? It's about a wedding. There was this huge, huge wedding, okay? Uh, and, and, and like super, super fancy wedding, so fancy. There are people uh, coming from all over the United States to come to this wedding. There's like this huge, huge uh, band with all these violins and, and trumpets and horns, and it's just this huge, fancy deal. There's all this food, really, really fancy food. Everyone is dressed up like, you know, super, super nice, and just everyone looks great. It's a big, big deal. There's tons and tons of people there. It's a huge wedding. Okay, and because it's such a huge wedding, really, really big weddings sometimes go slow, because it, it takes a while for everyone, to, you know, to get seated, for everyone to go, uh, you know, the special people to come down the aisle. And you know who comes down the aisle last? The bride. Like she comes down the aisle very, very last. She comes down this, this little row to come up and get married. She, she's kind of the big deal of the whole wedding. Well, so this was a really slow wedding, and this bride is waiting in the back with her dad. And they're waiting by the food. And she's looking at it, and she's realizing how hungry she is because she hasn't eaten all day. So her and her dad, the bride and her dad, while they're waiting for her turn to come up and get married, uh, they, they start eating some of those just green and yellow mints that are, that are really good. And then uh, they had some nuts. There were some nuts there. Uh, and then they saw some black olives, little stuff, you know? Okay, so, mm, uh, so good, black olives. And then uh, a cheese ball. Ooh, that cheese ball was so good. She's going to have just one more. She has another cheese ball. Uh, and then she finds some crackers and some really, really fancy, what they call liver pate. So she, she loads up on, on some of that. Uh, and then she sees the bacon-wrapped shrimp. And she can't stop. She's got to have some of that bacon wrapped shrimp before anyone else does because she's the bride and it's really special for her. Okay, and then some of those sausages on the toothpicks things. Mmm, so good. Everything is so good. I'm feeling so much better now. And I'll wash it all down with some champagne because now it's, it's time to go. Well, really, really long runway aisle thing. And she does fine. She gets down to the end of the aisleway just fine. And then... <laughs> The bride throws up a lot everywhere. She throws up on two of her bridesmaids. She throws up on the little ring bearer. She throws up, she throws up all over the groom, the guy she's going to marry. Uh, and, and no one's laughing except the father of the bride and the mother of the groom. Uh, and they are just, you know, but it's this, now it's this huge, the wedding is now this huge fancy, like they had planned forever, this huge, fancy, awesome wedding with all these, you know, fancy, fancy, famous people there. And it ends in this awkward, gross, weird mess. Uh, and then later they laughed. They all laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed about it because that was not the end of the wedding. You know what happened at the end of the wedding? They got married. The bride got her groom, and the groom got his bride. 
okay, that is basically the book of Job. Okay? That's basically what the book of Job is, is, is Job's, you know, Satan comes to God and says, hey, listen, since the fall, everybody belongs to me. They're all going down. They all belong to me. And God says, no, that's not true. I'm saving people by grace. Look at Job. And Satan says, ooh, let me make Job suffer. Let me make him a mess. And you'll see he doesn't really love you. And God says, okay, go for it. So Satan does. Satan makes Job's life a total mess. And yet in the end, Job still gets God. And God still gets Job. Because Job believes in God's grace. He believes that no matter what's going on, yeah, my life is such a mess. But in the end, there still is salvation. There still is this thing of, I get God. And and so guys, that's Job's story. I just want to tell you, that that's probably what your life is going to look like in some way too. Your life is also going to look like this weird mess. It seems like, oh my gosh, everything was going to go right, and now look at my life. It's, it's awkward, it's gross, it's a mess, it's weird. And one day we will all laugh about it in heaven because we know that, that you know, our hard life is not the end of the story. The end of the story is Jesus really does save us. We really get Jesus, Jesus really gets us, and we will get to be with him in heaven where everything is perfect, where there is no grossness, no awkwardness, no mess, forever and ever and ever. That's what we're going to see today with Job. That's what we're going to see in the whole whole book. We're bringing it all to an end. If you remember that the book of Job is about, in a word, it's about conflict. Satan, like we just said, he challenges God since the fall. It's all his God says, no, grace is real, it's true. Satan says, no, it's not. Look at Job. And so this conflict centers on Job. Will Job really hold on to God by grace? Will God really hold on to Job by grace? Or is it all a lie? Is it all fake? Satan attacks, Job descends into despair, such despair that it looks like Job is going to turn his back on God, and then God shows up. God shows up himself in a terrible storm to come for Job. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Some selections from Job 38, 40, and 42. These, these early selections are about God showing up. And in between, you're going to see some repetition here. <clears throat> in between those repetitions of God challenging Job is Job's confession. Job's repentance. That's what's happening in the middle of this, what we confessed earlier. <clears throat> it says this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Again, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job repents. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have spoken of me what is 
You have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. <clears throat> so Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told him. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then he came to then came to him all his brothers and sisters and <clears throat> all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, <clears throat> 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man, full of days. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, at the end of the book of Job, the conflict, it turns into a collision. It's the title of that sermon, Collision of Champions. <clears throat> Satan attacks Job, and Job starts to turn on God, which means God now has to go at Job. Okay. Have you all heard, you all heard of a Mexican standoff? It's a really famous uh, movie trope. It's this thing you see in stories. You see it in movies. <clears throat> you see it in history. It is a conflict between multiple combatants where there seems to be no way, no way for any party to win the fight, to get the victory. You know, whoever initiates the aggression might bring about their own demise. And uh, if any party tries to retreat, they're going to bring about their own demise. So think <clears throat> most famous, if you've lived uh, a, a little while, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a really, really famous uh, standoff scene at the end. Uh, or you could think of The Office, uh, season six, when they play the murder role uh, game. And uh, at the very end, Jim, he's talking to the camera and he says, Andy revealed himself to be a double agent, at which point Dwight felt comfortable revealing that he was also a double agent. And then Michael announced to everybody that, get this, he was a double agent. <clears throat> and so at the very end, you see, you see Andy, uh, Dwight, and Michael pointing imaginary guns at each other, still playing this game. Michael says, on the count of three, we're all going to put down our guns. And Dwight says, I have crossbows. And Michael says, okay, we'll put down our weaponry on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Ah! You know, and they're all still standing there at the end. They won't go home. The game, you know, and at the very, 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 very end, like late at night now, they're still standing there. They're just, ah! They can see it's all coming. They just start gunning each other down with imaginary weapons. Okay, this great, this great ordeal between God and Satan, it starts to play out, and you get a second ordeal between God and Job. <clears throat> Within the first ordeal between God and Satan, 
It is these two ordeals, God and Satan, God and Job, uh, they're distinguishable, but the second ordeal is part of the first ordeal, and the outcome of the second ordeal determines the outcome of the first ordeal. So, to subdue Satan by the hand of Job, God first has to subdue Job. And victory and defeat are so entangled in this three-way fight that if Job, as God's champion, is going to overcome Satan, then Job has to prevail with God. But Job can only prevail with God if he is brought to his knees in willful submission to God. That means Job can only subdue Satan by being subdued by God. Yay, that makes sense. Uh, standoff. Okay, before God, okay, before God had showed up, we saw Job's faith. Like we really did. We saw Job's genuine, sincere faith. He, right before God shows up, he is confessing the fall is really true. The fall that happened in Adam is really true. This life is really, really, truly broken by sin. Then before that, in the depths of his despair, <clears throat> he cries out with faith, cries out with faith in, this pro- in the promised deliverance that is going to come. That this deliverance is going to, uh, deliverance from sin and from death, <clears throat> that's going to come through a divine redeemer. What we confessed, uh, our assurance of pardon, I know that my redeemer lives. Those are Job's words. Earlier than that, <clears throat> Uh, when he had it all good, when Job had everything, we saw the sincerity of his faith as he is offering sacrifices to God in anticipation of that ultimate sacrifice to come and the sacrifice of this Redeemer. Job believes all of that. And then at the end, that faith has persevered. And he repents, turning back to God for nothing more than God himself, for God's sake alone, to get God back. Even though Job has nothing but God now, he believes in the, this covenant of grace that was promised right after the fall. He still thinks it's true. And so right here, as he confesses his faith, re- redemption springs its surprise. Because Job is overwhelmed in the divine duel with God, and yet Job receives a verdict of justification. And he receives blessing and restoration. So Job the vanquished is Job the triumphant. By his submission, he prevails with God. Now here's God's triumph over Job. God is working deliverance from Job's evils in the reverse order in which they occurred. So, the big one, God deals with Job's false sense of God's abandonment. God shows up in the whirlwind. He's not abandoned Job. He's there. Still Job's God. Then God deals with the defamation of Job's name, his his faith, and God rebukes Job's friends. Uh, And then God restores and he doubles Job's wealth and his family, all that he lost. See, that's all in reverse order. It's genius, right? Uh, Everything he had, God gives him twice over. We really, really like all that stuff until we get to the twice over stuff. 
and because we start to think, well, wait, no, wait, this double restoration kind of begs the question that we started with. <clears throat> Doesn't this just reinforce the false theology of Job's friends that the righteous ultimately are, are like, the righteous are blessed in this life? That's what his friends have been arguing. It seems to justify this at the end. So wait, is religion just a means to prosperity? It's a good question, even here at the end. And we want to make sure we get this and say, no. God has made it abundantly clear through the life and suffering of Job that piety and prosperity, they are not uh, invariably companions in this life. That's clear from Job's life. And what is pictured here is more than blessings in this life. This is a picture of heaven at the end. The original readers, <clears throat> the Israelites, this is probably written around the time, uh, you know, the wisdom literature is written <clears throat> around the time of the kings, Solomon probably. The original readers would have gotten this because the Psalms talk about the double reward uh, being a heaven, it's, it's talking about heaven. The double reward in the Psalms is, is the reward of heaven for all your suffering. <clears throat> Job gets this too. That what's going on is this, is, is, is yes, he's being restored, but he gets what it's all about. And, and this is one reason why. He gets double everything back, right? Uh, gets double everything back, except when he had, he had ten children. Everything was restored, and he had ten children. Which begs the question, wait, wait, why didn't God give him twenty children? Because he never lost the first 10. Because his first 10 children, they are waiting for him in heaven. They are Job's in eternity, and when he arrives there, he will see it is true. He never lost them. <clears throat> uh, one Old Testament scholar who I've relied thoroughly on uh, for this whole series, Meredith Klein, says, The meek will inherit the earth. In the end, that is an integral part of God's blessing to those who are righteous, not based on their own works, <clears throat> but through their faith in the Savior to come and his works. And because of him, the righteous must ultimately be given beauty for ashes. <clears throat> Let's see if I can pull this together. I love C.S. Lewis, but I am a novice. Uh, I, I, I've been helped here by another pastor, Brian Habig, who I heard this from. <clears throat> I read his books. I love C.S. Lewis. I read his books. And, and I've read his biographical uh, stuff, too. Uh, but I, I heard this, that this, this is something I never knew, and apparently no one else knew either uh, until recently. British scholar Michael Ward has made C.S. Lewis his area of expertise. Uh, when he's working on his doctorate, on, on Lewis's work, he's reading one of Lewis's poems. And, and you need to know, Lewis's day job was, he, he, he was an author, right, all this stuff, but his day job was, he was a, uh, a, a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature. So, <clears throat> Ward is reading this poem by Lewis on uh, the, it, it's a poem about the medieval view of the planets. And the medieval view of the planets, it's, it's, <laughs> We're, we got it more accurate now, right? But the medieval view of the planets is that above the earth, there are seven planets. 
uh, the seven heavens. There's the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. <clears throat> Ward is reading this poem. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Ward is reading the poem. He gets to the part about Jupiter. It says this, winter past, guilt forgiven. And he thinks, dang, that's like a really great summary for uh, Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so he gets to thinking, and he starts reading, you know, more about, you know, in this poem about Jupiter. He's like, wow, all of those themes really line up with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So he gets to thinking more. Okay, wait, now, there are six more planets and six more stories in, in, you know, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, what are the themes of Prince Caspian? And he thinks, well, it's war and woods. Wow, okay, and those are themes related to Mars, Okay, okay, we, 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 this is crazy. What, what about the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Okay, those are the themes of dawn and light and gold, like the sun. And he goes through this, and Ward has this epiphany. Oh my goodness, Lewis based his Chronicles of Narnia on the medieval view of the planets, and no one is talking about it. Bam! Dissertation! And he proceeds to write an incredible dissertation. And, and it's true. It, so Lewis's best friend, who you all love so much, was J.R.R. Tolkien, um, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings stuff, who was also a genius. Uh, and y'all may not be in love with Tolkien, but guess what? Tolkien hated Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia stuff. He, and he told them all the time because they would get together and read each other's stuff. And Lewis would constantly, uh, sorry, Tolkien would constantly look at Lewis and say, this is terrible. Jack, like, n- no, you're mixing all these different traditions and all these different legends and all these different myths and you're just mashing them together and it's weird and it doesn't work. Like, what is Santa Claus doing in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? But it does make sense. Because Father Christmas is the joy that you still have in winter. And so Ward's point is like Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe has Jupiter-ness. Prince Caspian has Mars-ness. And on a, it, the genius of Lewis's story, hidden for so long, may not have been seen, but it, what, it was there. I, I, th- I think this is what's happening at the end of the book of Job. The great author of the great story of history, God's genius is not always so apparent to us, but, but it is, it's there. So let's, let's finally talk about the whirlwind. Have you noticed we haven't talked about that yet? Not, we just referenced it. The whirlwind, God shows up to Job in a whirlwind, and the whirlwind is a theophany of God. It was a theophany, a, the, a fancy word that just means theophanic. It's a local visible manifestation of God's presence on earth. You know these. Think of the burning Moses in the burning bush. Think of the Israelites, God leading them through the the wilderness and those two pillars, the the pillar of smoke and fire. Okay, that's those are theophanies. This whirlwind is a theophany of God. God shows up in the whirlwind. The whirlwind is terrifying. This is a hurricane force storm. And we here know about storms, and we know about hurricanes. Uh, 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 The average hurricane has as much power as a 10 megaton nuclear warhead going off every few minutes. Okay, 
this is frightening. And the frightening irony is back in Job 9, when Job is making all these demands on God to show up and explain himself, he admits, in the, mi- in the middle of that, he admits <clears throat> he's actually scared to death that if God did show up, he would crush Job in a storm. Well, God shows up in the storm in order to confront Job. And Job cannot run away. There's no running. There's no hiding. And you got to remember, Job is before Moses. He's before the burning bush. He's before the twin pillars of you know fire and smoke. But Job has heard of this terrible storm theophany of God before because this has happened before. Remember, we read this. Right after the fall, God shows up in the garden. Sorry. Love our translations. Love our translators. Thank God for them. <clears throat> they get Genesis 3.8 wrong a lot. Where it says God showed up after the fall in the cool of the day. It's not what, that's not what that says. What it's literally saying is in the spirit of the day, which is judgment day. God shows up in judgment right after the fall uh, in this terrible storm theophany, which is why Adam and Eve run and hide. And now, here it is, God comes to his servant Job who is falling and he comes in the storm as judge. Remember we started this whole series in Genesis 3 saying we've got to get Genesis 3 to get Job. After the fall, God shows up in judgment. The good news, when God shows up after the fall, the good news is that God pronounces his judgment curse not on Adam and Eve. He pronounces it on the devil. At which this, this pronouncement of curse upon the devil is at the same time the promise of salvation for God's people through a serpent trampling savior champion. And when God shows up in the storm of judgment here, this is supposed to shock the reader intentionally. It is supposed to jolt you as in Job you should be crushed by God's glory, his holiness, his awesomeness, his goodness. And in that storm judgment is the voice of love and grace for God's servant Job. And it is the voice of God's triumph over the Satan challenger. He has lost. Job defeats Satan as God brings suffering on Job and Job still believes. The gospel really does save. It is the gospel of Genesis 3 being fulfilled in Job because it's fulfilled by another champion. That serpent trampling savior who will crush the devil's head through his suffering. So ultimately to beat the devil, the son of God must come as the human champion and God must make him suffer judgment in our place. And in his suffering, that judgment for us, God overcomes Satan. How deep the father's love for us that we just sang that he would send his son to die for us. Then comes the objection. People hear that and the objection comes, okay, wait a second, what kind of monster puts someone he loves 
through suffering to save an enemy. Like, what kind of God makes his people suffer? What kind of God sent his son to die? Why doesn't God, if he's all-powerful, oh, and he's all-loving, just forgive our sin? No big deal. Sweep it under the rug. Overlook it. Forget it. Get over it. And to that objection, we need to raise a problem. Do we, do we here know why Jesus actually had to suffer and die? What does Jesus save us from? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That's God's wrath. Romans 5, 9, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. One of the hard things about being a Christian is that it's really easy as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to forget, to forget the gospel. Again, uh, Habig has been really helpful here. He, he says it like this, to start to think, I was never really in trouble with God. God, God loves me. I, I'm lovable. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, what, what our, what our co- culture will tell us today uh, is that you, you can be a sinner or you can be a sufferer. The truth is we are all, all of us, every single one of us, we are all sinners and sufferers. But our culture today says that you can be one or the other. And if you're one, you're not the other. If you're a sufferer, then how dare you talk about any, any sin? You're only a sufferer. You're only a victim. People have hurt you. They have oppressed you. You, can't be, you cannot be held responsible for the things that you have done wrong because of that. And we, we want to be, as Christians, we want to have compassion. We want to have sympathy on those who have suffered and who have been sinned against. Yes, we must be. And yet our compassion and our sympathy, it, it cannot, it simply does not remove the guilt of anyone's sin. I love all of you. I love every single one of you. But not one of you escapes the wrath of God because you're lovable, because you're good. You escape the wrath of God because Jesus takes the wrath of God for you. Job said, he, Job said previously he was an innocent sufferer. No, there's only ever been one innocent sufferer. It's Jesus. Job said, I am the faithful servant that has been cut off from God. <clears throat> no, that's not true. Jesus is the only faithful servant that has been cut off from God. And God does not stop being the judge because you become a Christian. God is the judge. There will be a judgment, but that judgment has been taken for us by Jesus. And here's the big so what. So what? Okay, so, so what is at stake in this war between God and Satan that we are a part of? Like, what's at stake? 
good news is it's actually not your faith. It's not your perseverance that it, that's at stake. <clears throat> it's God's faithfulness to us that's at stake. What's at stake is God's claim to have fulfilled the Genesis 3.15 gospel. This, gr- this gospel of grace through Jesus. Y'all follow me, just a little deep theology here. We haven't gone deep yet. Let's just go deep here just for a second, just for a moment, okay? <clears throat> in that gospel promise, you remember we read that in that gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, there's the offspring of the woman who's gonna crush the, the head of the serpent. Okay, that offspring of the woman, the New Testament is really, really, really clear. That offspring of the woman, it's the individual offspring, individual, single offspring, is Jesus. New Testament says that over and over and over and over and over. Uh, did you know that it says that? I'm going to say and. Did you know that it says that in Galatians 3, 16? And then just a few verses later, in verse 29, it says that that Genesis 3, 15, offspring of the woman, also refers to the collective offspring. The people of God who are united to Jesus by faith. Okay, what that means is the Genesis 3.15 promise of grace that God is going to save us by crushing the serpent's head, it's fulfilled not only in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it's also fulfilled through the suffering of Jesus' body that is the church. Our suffering is a participation in Christ's suffering and we will persevere by grace. God, the the claim is, what's at stake here? The claim is, is that God will sustain us in faith. And that is part of God's victory over Satan. This is what Job is about. Despair, just this thing that Job is, is just, despair could take any one of us like it took Job. Just think big picture with me as we're drawing a comparison to Job here. This world, it is brutal. And that is just based on what little we know from our subpar sources of news. There's suffering out there that we have no idea about. There is so much poverty. There is so much abuse of children. There is so much uh, sex trafficking. There's so much famine. There's so much starvation. There's so much corrupt leadership. There's so much ignorance, so much hatred, so much violence, so much disease. And that was before the global pandemic. And we now don't know what's next. And this world has always been a world with genocide since the fall. It has always been a world of starvation and children being brutalized. And it's not going to go away. It is not going to get fixed by us. And then you can go small picture. And you can think of our individual suffering for a moment. Think of your individual suffering, that thing in your life that you cannot get fixed that thing that you can't seem to get right even if you had every resource at your disposal and the question is 
is despair going to overtake you? And the answer to our despair, it is not our own strength. It is not our own resources. It is not through discipline. It is not through hard work. The answer is faith that Jesus overcomes the world and that he is coming to make all things new. The answer to the brokenness of this world is not us figuring out how to fix it all. We can't. Try as we should, try as we might. Who God is and what he has done, that your sin does not own you. God does. That's the answer to despair. Charles Spurgeon, he's a great Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century. He's thinking on God's love. He says this, I cannot liken it to anything that I know of better than the snow which melts in the sun. You wake up one morning and all the trees are festooned, festooned with snowy wreaths, while down below upon the ground the snow lies in a white sheet over everything. Lo, the sun has risen. Its beams shed a genial warmth, and in a few hours, where is the snow? It has passed away. Had you hired a thousand carts and horses and machines to sweep it away, it could not have been more effectively removed. It has passed away. That is what the Lord does in the new creation. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us, and the old things pass away. Where his blessed face beams with grace and truth as the sun with warmth and light, he dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace. All of us have ice on the inside. Whether it's the ice of overworking, or it's keeping up with the Joneses, or it's keeping up appearances, or it's compromising with our culture and the world because you're obsessed with success and, and reputation and relevance and approval and just safety. Or whether it's the ice of distraction with constant video games, alcohol, YouTube, pornography, whatever it is, just because you, you just want to be comfortable. All of our hearts have that ice of pride and fear. What melts that ice? The sun. And let's just make that S-O-N, the sun. <laughs> so perfect. It's because it's, it's not doing the right thing. It's not doing the right thing. It's, it's not being a better person. It is not being more moral. But, being more compromising, being more flexible, more open, more accepting, or going the other way and being more rigid and more moral, that might just make your heart all the more frozen. What melts the ice is God's love. It is the miracle of miracles. The holy God, this holy God is for sinners because he loves you. Job, the, uh, I cannot remember who I heard this from. I wish I could because this is just one of the greatest things I've ever heard. Job goes toe-to-toe with the devil himself in battle. And what Job did to defeat the devil was not by his strength. It was not by his own courage. He faced the devil with the weapon of who God is. 
he faced the devil with the weapon of God's love and his grace. And he beat him. With something as profound as Job, how do we bring this to a close? We could go with Tolkien. We're not going to. We could go with Lewis. We're not going to. We're going to go with the genius of Charles Schultz, Peanuts, Charlie Brown. Y'all know, y'all know Char- Charlie Brown's Christmas. It's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Okay, uh, the shows, genius. The comic strips, genius. There is a rare peanut strip where Lucy hugs her younger brother, Linus, which is crazy because she, Lucy is constantly bullying Linus. Calls him blockhead. Always on to always beating him up. It, which is pro- it's why Linus must have that security blanket. Okay, well, there is one strip where she is going off about the woes of her life. You know, woe is me. And Linus, the intellectual, loving brother, comes in with his wise counsel and he says, maybe you should be thankful for the blessings you have. And she snaps back, you know, in the next, the next uh, paint, she snaps back like she's going to pummel him. She's like, well, you know, blessings, what blessings, huh? And Linus says, well, for one thing, you have a brother who loves you. And then in the next, uh, the next pain, she bursts into tears. She grabs him. And in that last pain, oh, oh my, where the salty discharge? Um, last pain, Linus says, wow, every now and then I say the right thing. Ah, the creator God of the universe. Our God, our Lord, who has every reason to abandon us, who has every reason to reject us, destroy us. If we had nothing else in this life, we have a God who loves us. His grace is really true. Let's pray. Let me just say, uh, thank you for grace, and we pray that you would continue to show us our sin and continue to show us our Savior, who is mighty to save. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.